0: In the fall of 1978, Robin and I moved to Abilene, Texas to go to graduate school at Abilene Christian University. We drove our 1973 orange super beetle uh, down from Oregon to ACU uh, the week after we got married. So we got married, a week later, we're on our way to Abilene. Got down there and uh, started meeting wonderful people. It wasn't very long before I noticed that there was another guy on the campus, but I think he was the only one who had an orange VW Beetle, and that was David Flair. I, I think yours was a regular Beetle and mine was a Super Beetle, if I remember right, because I had the bigger tail lights. Yeah, and, and you didn't. But we, you know, we uh, became acquaintances and friends, not only because we had the same car, but also because we found out that we grew up not very far from each other, just down the freeway, really. Uh, two Northwest boys down in Abilene, and it was an entirely different world in Abilene, Texas, than it had been in uh, in Oregon or across the river in Washington in Vancouver. Just a completely different world. But that different world was so good in so many ways. And David and I had a chance to get to know each other, to study together, to learn together, to be exposed to things that we hadn't been exposed to before. We were talking all afternoon about the experience of going to ACU together and about the guys that we were able to study with and the things that we learned and just our history together in the church. And And it just was a, a rich blessing of sharing and, and uh, having fun again about all of those things. Well, a lot of water has gone under the bridge for both of us. And we have ended up in in very diverse places. For a while, David did do some ministry in the Pacific Northwest at the Vancouver Church of Christ. Uh, You were there for how long? Ten years? Eleven years? And uh, eventually made his way after working on a Ph.D. at the University of Washington. He ended up at Rochester College in Michigan. He actually, at Rochester, has taught a lot of Canadian students who went to Great Lakes. Uh, Rebecca didn't go to... Rochester, but she knows all kinds of people that David knows, and David knows people from her family and everything else because of that connection in Ontario. So there are connections all over the place between David and Canadians and Canadian churches. He was actually just saying to Rebecca as I was coming down the aisle, the best students that I had at Rochester College were the Canadians. Huh? Isn't that a, yeah. And it's true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. And so David has, uh, has done wonderful ministry, he has preached well, he has taught preaching well, he's taught a lot of students how to preach, he speaks at lectureships and at churches and uh, you know, is all over the place doing various things. He currently is teaching preaching and communication speech at Rochester College. He also is the assistant to the president at David Lipscomb University and has a special role there, heads up what's called the Christian Scholars Conference, which under his leadership has just grown and multiplied and become a, quite a notable event. Well, behind all of those things is an absolutely beautiful heart. And for all the years that I've known David and the times that we've spent together and fellowship together and been at places listening and learning t- together, I have consistently seen David's heart focused on God's heart. And I know very well how much David wants to see in our world Christians live the way and experience in this world the kind of things that God wants us to live out and experience. Now, what he's talking about this weekend is the notion of living in the world, making it a reality, the world that Scripture imagines, Which means that Scripture gives us a vision. And that vision comes from God. And David's going to talk about living out that kind of world. And I think it's going to be a blessing. If you want to come up here, I'd like to pray for you. Father, I'm grateful for my brother. I'm grateful for our friendship over a number of years, decades now. I'm grateful for common experiences. I'm grateful for the impact that David has had on my life. I pray that you'd bless him as he speaks to our church family here over the next couple of days. And I pray that the things that he says will be things that you want him to say. I pray, God, that these would be your words. I pray that through your spirit, you'd work through him to teach us and shape us and make us more what you want us to be. I thank you, God, for the privilege we have of having him here. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you, my friend.
1: Thank you. I told Kelly that um, I have a theory that demons possess certain groups. And I have this thesis that demons possess, in the churches of Christ, they possess the sound systems. (laughs) And my thesis is held true wherever I go. So I just say that up front. And uh, now, the demons just left the room. Aren't we grateful? (laughs) Well... You know, I think I might try this mic. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, uh, just the fact that Kelly would know the difference between the fact that he had a super beetle and I had a 1972 non super beetle. I mean, I knew that, but I'd forgotten it, but he reminded just that, just how smart this fellow is. It's just, it is absolutely amazing. <laughs> I remember the first time I met Kelly was in a class, and he was sitting behind me. And we had prayer requests before the class began. This is like the second day of class, and I hadn't noticed, you know, everybody in the class. And, he, and, and Kelly's called on, and the professor says yes. And, and Kelly was, was, wanted some prayers for some kind of a physical ailment that he was having related to his foot, I think. And little did I know that this guy was a marathon runner. I mean, a long distance runner. Uh, you know, just a surprising fellow. It's just, you don't expect this. And then, you know, he's running marathons and driving not just beetles like me, but super beetles that are, that are orange. I tell students, uh, that I have these, these future ministers, I say, and you will be your congregation's theologian. And then I think, oh dear. when that reality of what I've just said settles in. But then I think of the person who's actually gone out and done the work, the training, the terminal degree to be a theologian, and then enters into a congregation, and he is the resident theologian, and he has been trained, I mean really trained, to be a theologian. What an awesome situation you have here in Calgary. Kelly has for a long time been a a good friend. Uh, One other similarity, my mother's long passed away, and Kelly's mother passed away when he was quite young. When somebody says the things that Kelly said, two things run through my mind. The first is, oh, I hope that's true. And the second thing is, I wish my mother could hear that. (laughs) Thank you, Kelly. Kelly. You're a good friend and a wonderful colleague. Um, I have some distant uh, connection with uh, Alberta. Uh, my wife comes from a family of seven, and all of her siblings before her were born in Alberta. And then something happened with Dad's job, and he headed south, and about a month later, she was born in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. So just with a couple of quirks, just a little few switches, I, you know, I I could have married a Canadian, but... I, I missed it by about a month, my, my loss. And I want you all to know that my favorite song in the 1970s was Gordon Lightfoot's Alberta Bound. Alberta Bound. I'd sing it for you now if I could carry a tune. I can't. But it's on my heart as I now fulfill the song that I loved uh, 40 years ago. And Kelly's absolutely right about the Canadian students. Holy smokes. Uh, you don't know these people, uh, but uh, this kid named Richard Maddow came in. He must have had a 36 AT- ACT score, knocked, his- knocked the charts off with with test scores and another one named Jeremy Hoover Hoover, both from Canada I would give quizzes and they opted out of the 11th and last quiz because they didn't need it they already had an A secured before the final it was just amazing brilliant and then along came the locks and on and on it went all these Canadians well about two years of this I went to the president and I said we need to set up a tent outside this school in Beamsville that's sending us all these smart students seriously I became prejudiced against people of my own country. (laughs) Why can't you be as smart as the Canadians? And then, of course, she threw in a a clunker, and I realized, okay, not everybody is as smart as these other Canadians. But then, again, the exception proves the rule. So Kelly gave uh, an assignment, and I'm going to read the assignment. What would you do with this? He said, Friday night will be an address to our church. I would think you would want to suggest what the issues are and how a particular theological vision can motivate us and make us effective at living in the world Scripture imagines. Whew. I said, okay, he's serious. And so I decided that I would be serious too. And what I'm going to do is uh, set out uh, very quickly... Uh, an evolution in thought to get to where Kelly described we would be, that is living in the world that Scripture imagines for us. A quick kind of survey of how we get there, then moving into some specific texts. Boom, ba-da-boom, ba-da-boom. And then at the close, I have a prepared segment that will be an example of how one moves into, how we move into this world envisioned in Scripture. How easy it is to say it, and how difficult it is to do it. And I'd like for you to kind of walk with me. The second piece will be an autobiographical, or the last piece will be an autobiographical piece. What I'm after in living in the world envisioned in Scripture, is to engage the world that Scripture envisions, which means that we begin with a hermeneutic or a way of approaching Scripture of generosity, which tries to understand the world imagined by Scripture, not by explaining it, but by understanding it, so that we might learn from it learn from that world so that we might engage it marking the ways that we do or we do not live in the world and to discern what that means which demands that we let go of our preoccupation with the world that produced the Bible and our preoccupation with ourselves and begin to engage the world that the Bible produces our lives are rooted in in the biblical text which speaks to the deepest levels of human need. So we must move into the world of the Bible where there exists a place that we can live and invite others to live. The Bible imagines a world created by God and by imagining that world reveals it and by revealing it invites us to enter it and by, by inviting us to enter it enables us to embody it and by embodying it makes the world real when we make this imaginative leap where God speaks through scripture where scripture is infinite in its possibilities for meaning where the living God continues to work in new ways this is our task and this is what I will be about this evening so what did he say? well he just said that (laughs) Well, how do we get there? Okay, good. I'm glad you asked that. We come to the text like, uh, like craftsmen with tools in his or her tool chest. Long ago in churches of Christ, every card carrying member was able to, to what, what scholars would call apply the critical The historical, grammatical, critical approach. Every card-carrying member of the Church of Christ knew the definition of certain words. Every member, for example, knew what the word baptizo meant. To dip, to plunge, to immerse. You had to say that before you get in the building. (laughs) Or this for a quiz. "solo." what does solo mean it means to pluck the strings of a guitar Uh, no it means to pluck the strings of the heart and we were experts at words oh yeah you have your bible with you sometimes words are important absolutely important. Take a look, if you can find it, at the book of Esther. Last time I looked, it was nestled up against Job. There they are, Job and Esther. You'll find it. Esther chapter 1, the importance of words. Here's the illustration. In the book of Esther, it begins by describing the party that King Xerxes is throwing for himself. It's a half year long party followed by a one week long super bash. And, 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 And Esther, the writer of Esther, describes what this party looks like. Xerxes is showing his stuff. It's the marble columns, and it's the gold couch, and it's the royal linens, and the purple, and the silver hangings, and porphyry. And I don't know what porphyry means, but it's in a mighty expensive neighborhood that's what. That's how Esther begins, Xerxes' big party. But the word I want you to notice is the word that occurs in verse 4. It says that Xerxes was putting on display. Do you see that? The word is display. He was putting on display his royal glory. And then all the furniture is described. The word was display. He was putting on display his stuff, his furniture. Now, drop your eyes down to verse 11. And there that word occurs again. This time, Xerxes' advisors are trying to convince him that he should put not only his royal furniture, but he should put his royal queen Vashti, and there it is the word again, on display. Oh my. Within a paragraph, the word occurs twice. The furniture's on display, and now the queen is on display. They want her to get onto the royal catwalk and let everybody see, like the porphyry and the couches and all that. Oh my, what a word will do. It's the same word. Huh, how about that? Sometimes, words are not just important, but words perform they perform. They do stuff. The difference between the right word and the almost right word, Mark Twain said, it's like the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. Oh, very different. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Joel. Take a look at this. This is so interesting. In the book of Joel, Joel is divided into two parts. The first part is chapters one, chapter one, one through one through two, seventeen, which is a description of the locust plague and a call for communal repentance. The second part is two, eighteen through the end, and it is a promise of blessings, material blessings, spiritual blessings, and protection from the enemies. I, I'm, this sounds really, you know, academic, but I'm just saying that Joel is easily seen. Two parts. Description of the locust plagues and call for repentance. And then, in the middle, assuming repentance, promise of blessings. I want you to look at chapter 2. Chap- the first part of Joel is divided into two parts. The first part is description of the locust plague and, prom- and, and call for repentance. And the second part is, beginning at one, description of the locust plagues and a call for repentance. Only now it's torqued up. The language gets intense. My point in taking us to Joel is to show that words perform. Words do things. They're not just there. They're doing something. And so in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and following, the locusts are described. And I want you to notice as we look at this, just very quickly, how sensual the language is. I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about the senses. Joel is appealing to the sense of sight and the sense of sound, the sense of taste, the sense of smell. I think I got them all. He's appealing to the senses. For example, look at verse 3. The locusts now. A fire consumes before them And behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them. But a desolate wilderness behind them. And nothing at all escapes. Can you see that? Oh, I can. A fire. A fire. The garden of Eden. A wilderness. I saw all of that. The sense of sight. Look at verse 4. Take a look at the locusts now. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Like a war horse, so they run. This isn't my friend Flicka. This isn't Black Beauty. These are, are animals of war, like tanks. Take a look at a locust. Put them under the microscope. What does it look like? Oh, It looks like a horse. Not only that, but they're functioning like a horse. Like a war horse, so they run. Oh, I can see that. Take a look at verse 5. Now, another another sense, as with the noise of chariots, so they roll. What does a chariot sound like? I don't know, but I've seen them in the movies. It sounds like this, only louder. The locust, I can see them. I can hear them. And he continues on. They leap on the tops of mountains and like the crackling of a flame. I hear that. A fire consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. All this fire, consuming fire. I can smell that. And on it goes with this sensual description of the locusts. And then he gets down to verse 9. What sense are we after here? He's describing the locusts. Don't look at the verbs. Look at the other words. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses and they enter the windows or the lattice, your translation might say, like a thief. Don't look at the word rush, run, climb, enter. Look at the other words. The city, the wall, the houses, and the windows. Do you see the movement? Do you see the movement? Oh, oh, I think I must come down now among you, and illustrate. It's a dark and stormy night. It's late October, and you you are in a large house, two stories. You're all by yourself. This is before cell phones. I say you're by yourself, and the and the and the wind is blowing, and the rain is coming down, and the branches rubbing against the window. When all of a sudden, the phone rings. Ring, 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 ring. You're home by yourself. Hello. No Alone. Hello. I know who you are. I know where you live. I'm in your city. I'm the Who is this? Ring, ring. Tito, solo, display. (laughs) These words are so important. I'm just saying to you, that's what, that's one of the tools in our tool chest. It's good to know those things. Good to know what those words mean. Pay attention to them. Listen to them. Sorry, I got carried away. And then of course, another tool in our tool chest is the literary tool where we pay attention to some of the things that literary scholars have have pointed to. Uh, They said, for example, that, you know, uh, the Bible is a lot like a newspaper. Remember the newspaper? Oh, I missed an old newspaper. Ours are all shutting down in the States. But I remember the Sunday paper. When it would come, a big thick thing. Oh my goodness, you'd lift weights just to be able to take the paper inside. And there would come the paper. There would be the sports page. And there would be the front page. And then there would be the ads and the comics. And every part of the newspaper demanded a different kind of approach to reading and understanding it. You don't read the comics like you read the front page. These things are not real. They're meant to amuse you. And you don't laugh at every comic you read. Though I don't don't, uh, go to the casinos, I assume it's like those armed bandits where you do this, do this. Do you get a quarter every time? No, but after a while, (laughs) Garfield was funny. I think I'll read that next Sunday. And that's how you read the comics. The sports page, a whole different approach. Some here know how to read a box score. There's a strategy for reading this. And the front page is different at the ads. Don't go out and buy everything advertised in there. Just to look around and kind of see what's going on out there. Every, every part of the paper demands a different strategy of reading. And so too with the Bible. It's not all alike. Well, it's the Bible. Yeah, well, it's the newspaper too. But there's different parts to it. I mean, some of it's narrative. Some of it is there are letters written. And there's different strategies that you take when you read this stuff. Some of it's poetry, for crying out loud. Some of it's apocalyptic, like Revelation, and so on. I just thought I'd point that out. And sometimes, sometimes, there's little different literary strategies going on once we've gotten into a particular text. For example, in the Gospel of Mark. I discovered one time, and I'm just a rhetorician. I'm just a rhetorician. Don't trust what I say. Look in the Bible and see if it's true. Rhetoricians are just trying to persuade you. Be warned. I could be dangerous. Keep your Bibles open as a weapon against whatever this man might say. But I was reading through my Gospel of Mark, and I noticed these little inclusios. You know what an inclusio is? A little mini chiasm? You see it in poetry. A, B, A... You, know, you see, remember that studying that in poetry? Well, the Gospel of Mark has a whole slew of inclusios, or many chiasms. Well, that is, Mark will start a story, tell it part way, and then he'll push the pause button and stop it, and then tell another story in its entirety from beginning to end, and then he'll come back to the story that he started. And so what, and, you know, I thought, this is kind of interesting. He does it all over the place. For example, in, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 1. I mean, Mark chapter 5 verse 21 is the story of Jairus. His little girl is sick. And so he goes to Jesus to see if he'll, if he'll get Jesus to come cure her and make her well again. And they're on their way. Jesus is going with Jairus to Jairus' home to, to, to take care of this little girl who's very sick. She's only 12 years old. But... On the way to Jairus' home, they're interrupted by a woman who has a hemorrhage, and she's gone to several doctors, and she's not gotten any help whatsoever. And so she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And so in fear and trembling, she comes forward and touches the hem of his garment, and vroom, she's healed. But Jesus, seeing that the power has gone out of him, turns around and says, Who touched me? And the disciples don't take him seriously. They say, Who touched you? Look at the crowd. He says, No, somebody touched me. I can feel the power gone. And then the woman comes forth and tells what happens. And Jesus says, Go in peace, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. And that's it. it. And then Mark comes back to the story that he starts. And Jairus' people came to him and said, Trouble the teacher no more. Your daughter has died. But Jesus goes and he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. A whole bunch of stories are told just like that. And so I got a page full of these texts. And I went to a New Testament scholar, colleague, friend of mine who was just down the hall. And I said, I've noticed something. And he nods his head and says, yes, yes, that's all over Mark. And I said, I've also noticed that in every one of these instances... The centerpiece is the most important. It's like a, like a sandwich. It's like pastrami on rye. The outside's important, but what's in the middle is like really important. And I looked at my New Testament scholar friend and said, is that true? Could it be true? He says, oh, I don't think so. I said, really? I says, what do you make of it then? And he says, well, these texts are certainly made to be read together. The way that Mark presents it, they're to be talking to one another. I still think the most important piece is in the middle. The sandwich, the pastrami is more important than the rye. All the way through, Peter. I won't deny him. I don't care what anybody else does. I won't. And then Jesus' trial. And then Peter's denial. A, B, A, centerpiece, most important. I don't know. This is just a tool in the toolbox. I'm just showing you the monkey wrench. Say, look at this. This is how this thing works. And we got a box full of them. I just thought I'd point that out. And then finally, the one that's become interesting to me are the rhetorical concerns that are in the Bible. I was talking to a wonderful couple before services begin, and I said I had a background in rhetoric, and they knew what to say. They said, oh, really? I thought rhetoric was a bad word. I said, well, it is in some circles. You can't trust them. But that's how it was in the first century. In the first century, one of the leading thinkers of the day was a man named Saint Jerome. They didn't call him Saint then, but we call him Saint Jerome today. And Saint Jerome, like all of the leaders of the church and all of the academics, was a rhetorician. He taught rhetoric in the academy. But one night, Jerome had a dream. And in his dream, the Lord came to him and said, Who art thou, Jerome? And Jerome said, I am a Christian. And the Lord said in his dream, Thou art not a Christian, thou art a rhetorician. Well, Jerome woke up and he immediately abandoned rhetoric. And so did all the other Christians of the day. And then along came a man named Augustine. But blue-collar people like me say Augustine. And Augustine points out in one of his volumes, he says, you know, rhetoric was actually found in the pages of Scripture to begin with. All the Bible writers were rhetoricians. They're all trying to persuade the people to believe. Absolutely. The end of John goes like this. If all the things that Jesus had done and said were contained in the book, why, all the libraries of the world couldn't contain it. But, he adds... These things I have written, so that you might believe, and in believing have life in his name. He was trying to persuade, and so John edited the material, put it together to persuade his readers. Persuade them to do what? To believe, so that they might have life in his name. I get it. And and Augustine says that's how all of Scripture is working. They're putting together rhetorical tools. For example, in the way that the thing is arranged. And even in the way that it's delivered, two of the five canons of rhetoric. I got to thinking about that, about delivery. You know that that the word onomatopoeia, when a word means what it sounds like? Buzz. You know, this is not hard. Hum. The lightning in the storm last night caused the tree to crack. No, you don't say it like that. You say, the lightning in the storm last night caused the tree to crack. You know, make it sound like what it is. And I got to looking at words in the Bible and I thought, what would that word sound like? Not buzz, hum, or crack. But what would that word sound like if I could make it sound like what it means? This is an issue, a rhetorical issue of delivery. And I got to Ephesians chapter 5 and my eyes fell upon the word Evil. For behold, the days are evil. And I thought, I wonder if I could make, I could say that word so that it sounds like what it is. Evil. 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 And I went on. I scared myself. (laughs) Yeah. Delivery, one of the, one of the canons of scripture. Or something simple like this. Something so simple like this. It's, it's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 and following. Matters of delivery, how material is presented so that it might persuade. If one gets up and reads the text in church, you could have a monologue, raw, 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 and Jesus said, raw, 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 and the Pharisee and then the tax collector and blah, blah. Or, If you pay attention to nothing more than the voice of the character, the distinction that there are four characters in this short recitation now there's a narrator, there's Jesus, there's Jesus doing the Pharisee, the voice of the Pharisee, and there's Jesus doing the voice of the tax collector. You can follow along in your text if you like. Here's how it goes Luke 18, 1 and following. First the narrator, then Jesus, then Jesus doing the voice of the Pharisee, Jesus doing the voice of the tax collector, and then back to Jesus again. Ready? And he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves as righteous. Two men went down to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other the tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people. Swindlers, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I make. But the tax collector was standing some distance away. Unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm, A little too theatrical, you might say. But you get my point, don't you? Delivery. Just discerning that there are four voices speaking. Let's make the narrator kind of calm and easy. And he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves. And Jesus, moderate at the start, but after he's told the story, some passion. And And the Pharisee, a bit arrogant for what he says, and the tax collector beating his breast, obviously in contrition. There are voices that will match that. This is issues of delivery. Allowing the world envisioned in Scripture just to come alive. Just to have some life. Not to give it life, but to allow the life that it has to breathe. Yeah. So what do you think? Oh, sometimes it's just a matter of how the thing's put together. One of the five canons of of rhetoric is arrangement. How it How it flows. The arrangement of many sermons that I hear, it goes like this. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. <laughs> but scripture doesn't always present itself that way. It has a more creative way of presenting, of arranging. For example, one of my favorite preachers is in Second Samuel chapter 12. His name is Nathan. He has a tough audience this morning. One guy, he's King David. King David is all-powerful. And there he is. And along comes Nathan. And his sermon goes like this. King, I'd like to tell you a story. There are two people. One's very, very rich. He's got a thousand sheep on a thousand hills, if you know what I mean. He's got a neighbor, though, that's extremely poor. One little ewe lamb. In fact, they brought it into the family, treated like part of the family. Well." Rich man has somebody come visit. You know what he does? He goes to the poor man, steals his lamb, butchers it and to treat his guests. What do you think of that? Why, David's incensed. He says this man ought to pay fourfold for what he's done. He ought to give his life for what he's done. And Nathan says, thou art the man. Nathan didn't tell him what he's going to tell him. Tell him, and then tell him what he told him. That's called an inductive approach, kind of coming in from the side, kind of you know hook him sort of thing. Precisely the way that it works in the chapter beforehand. I like to read this to freshman students. It's so much fun. We work through we work through the story of David in Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, and what a great man he was—great military leader. Great spiritual leader there in 2 Samuel, 1st, 2nd Samuel. And then behold, one day, 2nd Samuel chapter 11, where things change. And we just read it through. We read the whole, this text here that begins in verse 2 and goes through verse 5, 4 verses. And then I, I simply ask them, this is the story of the affair. I say to the students, there's 40 of these freshmen here. I say, who 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 would you think was at fault here? David or Bathsheba? I've got a Canadian student in the third row, and she raises her hand, and I say, yes, and she says, I think David's at fault. I said, oh, really? Why do you think David's at fault? She says, well, he's the king, and he has all the power, and he can do what he wants, and therefore, he's the one at fault. I said, oh, okay. She thinks David's at fault. Are there other options? Now, the Texas brought them alive, but I have three baseball players in the back row, and one of the baseball players, for the first time this semester, raises his hand. I said, yes. And he says, I think Bathsheba's at fault. I say, oh, really? Why do you think Bathsheba's at fault? And he says, well, there she is out in the open, bathing, and not any clothes on. I think she's at fault. The other baseball players nod their head. They think she's at fault, too. I said, okay. Well, it looks like we have two options here, doesn't it? And I go to the blackboard. I write down David, and then I write down Bathsheba. And I put a line under David, and I put a line under Bathsheba. And I say, that's it, huh? These are our two choices. Who's at fault? It's either David or Bathsheba, right? And then the C student, who so desperately wants to be in the class, he, she raises her hand and she says, I think they're both at fault. I say, ooh. Okay, good. There's a, there's a proverb in the Bible. I go, how does it go? It, says, it, it, takes, two, uh, it, takes, it takes two to, uh, how does that finish? It takes two to tango! You know, you know. Well, it's not in the Bible, but we got it. So we write down David and Bathsheba, and like everybody it's saying, oh, let's just vote. Got 40 students here. How many of you think David's at fault? How many of you think Bathsheba's at fault? How many of you think that David and Bathsheba are at fault? All right, let's start with David, Canadian student and two other bright students. You know if she thinks that's it, it's probably it. Three people raise their hand. Okay, how many people write down three. How many people think that Bathsheba's at fault? All the baseball players raise their hand. Again, another three. All right. Both the rest of the hands go up. I said, All right, let's just read this text. One more time. And this time when I read it, I want you to pay attention to the verbs. I want you to notice who gets all the verbs. And then we read. And I write down the words under the name, either David or Bathsheba. And now when the evening came, David arose from his bed and he walked. I write that down. Arose, walked. On the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw. Write that down. Saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. I didn't major in English, and I'm confused now. I don't know if those are verbs or not, but she was being beautiful, uh, I guess. All right. But back to David, verse 3. So he sent, write that down, and inquired, write that down, about the woman. And somebody said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? In the States, we call that a stop sign. <laughs> we have these things with metal that comes out and little warnings saying, do not proceed, severe tire damage. Just that kind of thing here. She's married. She has a husband. But David puts the car in gear and he plows ahead. Verse 4. He sent messengers and he took her. And notice how they describe the sex. And he lay with her. And when she had purified her. Okay, write that down for Bathsheba. She purified herself. Okay. She returned. All right, returned home. And then she conceived. Write that down. Conceived. Notice here she's getting all the verbs in reaction to what David has done to her. And then she tells David... That she's pregnant. Who's at fault? No offense, ladies, but this isn't about Bathsheba. It is about David. And what's what happens next is even worse. Now that he finds out that this woman he's not married to is pregnant, he calls in the husband and he says Listen, it's so tough not being at the battlefront. How's the war going? Tell me all about it. And Uriah tells him, he says, Now listen, why don't you go on home to your wife? I've got some flowers here. I've taken care of dinner. You go home. Spend the night. It's on me. Uriah says, Oh no, can't do that. I've taken a vow. No sex before. The battle's won. David goes downstairs and gets the royal wine. Here, have a glass. Have another. Have a third. Come on, one more for the road. And he says, Here's your hat. Now there's your home. Go on home and... Spend some time with your wife. What's her name? Bathsheba. Yeah, Bathsheba. But he's got his vow and he sleeps on the porch. And so then David writes a letter and puts it in his hand with a royal seal. It's a letter to Joab. And when it's delivered to Joab, he opens it up, the chief commander of the army. And it says, put Uriah at the fiercest point of battle. And then withdraw all the supporting troops, which is precisely what Joab does. And Uriah is killed. And when word comes that this has happened, David says, well, that's how it goes. This is war, baby. And the writer of Second Samuel 11 never once interjects his narratible comment. He just tells the story. I have a tape I want you to see. It's of somebody you love. You'll need to sit down. It's not pretty. And you put the tape in. And the person looks. And they melt. As they watch. what their beloved. You don't need any words. It speaks for itself. You know what that is. That's sin. That's evil. That's ugly. And the narrator doesn't need to tell it. That's called the inductive approach. Lay the material out there. And let the audience draw their own conclusions. They're smart. They can figure it out. When 2 Samuel 11 was written, all the other stuff went before it. And when we got there, we thought this guy was the greatest king ever. And he was. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the military leader. He was the one that wrote the Psalms for crying out loud. And this happens. Oh, David. Now the freshmen, they were voting. The baseball players thought it was all about Bathsheba. It wasn't. And this isn't even about two, it takes two to tango. This is all eyes on David, and it's disgusting. Now the last verse of chapter 11, I have to confess, does say directly, in case there was somebody sleeping through the video, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now prompt Nathan, and in comes the sermon these are strategies for reading these are tools in the tool chest this is just evidence to say and there's more 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 out there that this world that's being described is absolutely alive and it invites us to come in now what time do we have i'm looking around usually in churches of christ that have been around for a while you know that have had ministers from the past they have these huge clocks that even the blind can see <laughs> like so he'll know when it's time to quit but you guys don't have that clock where's your Church of Christ clock? what time is it so we have like what okay this is the this is the serious piece um, at the end. And this is an effort to move into this world and how seductive this movement can be. Because we already know what we want to find when we walk into the world. I was influenced by a particular scholar named Reynolds Price, who's also a novelist. He taught at Duke until he died this year. But in his memoir, he talks about reading children's books. And he said he would stare into the children's book, his, you know, the Bible book, children's Bible book, he would stare into a page of the children's book until doors would open and he could feel himself walking in. He said, I was learning the lines of a passionate life in a world where the least move matters. I would never sit still for the milk pudding of most children's books. Since I was a child, I have been looking for fathers, what some would call mentors, although I didn't understand my actions at the time. I can now look back and find myself searching in every place my family lived for an older man who would be a father to me. I've looked for venerable men to define manhood and Christianity. I've longed for older men to accept and love me. I needed and I need still a relationship in a safe and accepting environment where I do not fear rejection. A maternal grandfather, a university minister, a Texas cotton farmer, a professor friend became my father's through my adult life because I was raised in a dysfunctional family. I didn't know it at the time, but the term dysfunctional, while not yet in popular Parlance functionally throbbed inside our home I was reminded every day of how much my father loved my sister and what a pain I was to him I was contrasted with a neighbor boy across the street Stephen Bottomiller, who would dutifully be out trimming the hedge and cutting the grass and I, my dad's words were I was an embarrassment to him I was a disappointment to him. My sister reminded him of his beloved mother, and I of the father-in-law and the brother-in-law he could never get along with. During college, during Mother's Weekend, my mother would come out, as all mothers did, it seemed like, at Washington State. On Father's Weekend, my dad had something else to do. Until my sister went to college. I knew early on the limits of my father's love for me. On Labor Day weekend, 1963, the resort town of Seaside, Oregon, experienced an ugly riot. Motorcycles, hippies, broken windows in the town's taverns, the destruction of property is what I recall looking at on the black and white television screen. I was nine years old. The thought of being involved or even near a riot petrified me. But what I can remember, what I can still hear at this moment, are the words of my dad behind me who said, any son of mine caught in a riot would be immediately disowned. I was his only son. Later, after a teenage drinking binge, of which I am now quite ashamed, an incident which caused my mother to experience some physical illness, My dad, the only time I remember this happening was when he was mad at me, looked me in the eyes, and he said, If anything happens to your mother, you are no longer my son. My father openly declared that his love was conditional. If I crossed the lines he created, I would step outside the limits of his affection. I can still hear those voices, And I sometimes wonder if my pursuit of higher education was an effort to fulfill an unconscious need to please my dad. If so, I missed the mark. When I neared completion of a terminal degree, he advised, your problem, David, is that you still don't have any common sense. My dad's declared values had always been demonstrated elsewhere, toward the neighbor boy, toward the well-groomed teenage clerk in his grocery store. In 1993, my mother passed away. In the years since her passing, the magnitude of the love has grown, her love has grown, has grown. But within weeks of her death, I was informed that I was no longer the executor of my dad's will. You'll likely be more mobile than your sister, he said. He began to treat the family as our detached detached uncle did when we were children. This was a familiar pattern. No communication, which was interrupted just before Christmas with some impersonal and inappropriate gift and then the distancing overtures represented to us someone who was divorced from our life, eventually, in a shocking letter, I was told that I was disowned. It sounds so petty, and I'm only describing portions of it, which makes the alienation so difficult to understand and to accept. I realize that my own dysfunctional background pales in contrast to the tales that I hear others tell of sexual or physical abuse. Yet most people I know who were disowned from the family are those who are now in jail. But here I am. In all of this, the relationship with my birth father threatened to discolor my, my image of God. Does God draw a line in the sand and then watch, fully expecting me to cross that line? Does God create perfectionist... Professionistic expectations of me dooming me to failure? Does God contrast my weak and sinful behavior with the physical or emotional strengths of neighbor boys or younger men with whom he works? Has God labeled me a bad son? Does God think that people don't change, that one can identify like my dad by the time the children enter kindergarten, the type of personalities they'll exhibit as adults? Abandoned, unloved, disowned, I begin to feel bitter, resentful, and jealous, and at the nadir of my family experience, I turn to the Bible for solace, and I found myself in Genesis chapter 37, and the story of Joseph. The biblical narrative begins with Joseph's obvious and disproportionate love for Joseph. Jacob's obvious and disproportionate love for Joseph an obscene favoritism labeled by the narrator and expressed through Jacob's gift of the multicolored tunic. And I can recall from my own Sunday school days the desire to wear the attractive and party-like coat, competing even with the girls for the favored role of Joseph in the class play. But now, as a slighted adult son, I imagine my part as one of the brothers. The multicolored tunic to me is an ugly symbol of unequal love. The brothers saw that Jacob loved Joseph more and that when the father flaunted his love rubbing their faces in the tunic they naturally reacted with jealousy the brothers turned their feelings against the object of their father's affections Joseph they refused Joseph courteous conversation unloved sons the brothers and I allow ourselves to name the intensity of our unchecked anger it's not merely sadness or irritation or displacement that we feel we experience an animosity that can fester until it's Evolved into alienation. I thought I have found my story in the Bible. I thought I knew this tale because I had witnessed this unequal love. He loves her. He doesn't love me. Do you see the potential catastrophe of moving into a world that scripture imagines, that scripture envisions? It's filled with potholes. It's filled with detours. It's filled with all sorts of dangers. Tomorrow morning, I wish to finish this autobiographical piece as we move deeper and deeper into the Joseph story. So, I'm not coming back tomorrow. Well, forget my story. Then listen just to the close of Joseph's story. The Joseph story isn't about the brothers. And the Joseph story is only fully comprehended in relationship to a community of people who will continue to challenge you to live into this world that scripture envisions. I'd like you to come back tomorrow morning, if at all you can. And if you do come back, I have one little homework assignment. It sounds like it's radically different from anything that we've done, but it'll all be of a piece. I'll try to bring it together tomorrow. And that is, I'd like for you to think of a verse of Scripture. I'll cite it to you now, and you'll remember it. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, and the passage is this. It's a simple one. It's a beatitude. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Tomorrow, we're going to move into an interactive piece. I'll be very open and revealing in this interactive piece, and I would like for you to, too. I would like for you to come tomorrow morning with this preparation. I would like for you to go back in time, a year, five years, last week, 50 years, to a time in your life with a congregation where someone who did not deserve grace received grace when someone who didn't deserve mercy received mercy i don't want it to be long if you th- i don't want you to write it necessarily if you write it that'd be great but think in terms if you think in terms of words 250 words like maybe a paragraph something you could say in 2 to 3 minutes at the very max do you have a story from your experience about a time when mercy was extended When you saw fulfilled that beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Thank you for engaging tonight. We're trying to build something here in the next couple of days, and you've been wonderful partners in the building.
0: David, thank you. There's the initiation into something that is going to end here in a couple of days that's going to be really fruitful. And what we've seen is just some provoking of thought. We want you to think about this. Mercy. How have you seen it? Tomorrow morning you'll have an opportunity to share about how you've seen mercy exhibited. Let's pray. Holy Father, there is a, a vision for what you want us to have, to experience, to be. We want to capture that vision. We want to see it played out in our lives. And Father, as David takes us through this exercise, bless us. Help us to experience the vision you have for us. We pray that your spirit would be present to transform us. And bring this into our lives as a reality. We want to experience your fullness, your mercy, your grace. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.